0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, we're going to, uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll uh, just review quickly. We want to get these things stuck in our minds so that they are second nature to us. Father, thank you for uh, your holy word, and thank you for uh, the ministry that we have to one another. And we pray that you would uh, further equip us to serve each other, to do good to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we've been uh, studying um, biblical counseling, and we've noted biblical counseling is the ministry of the Word, it's discipleship, it's sanctification, it is Christ-centered and redemptive, all right? All right. So, next slide, Nathan. Okay, so who's qualified to counsel? Anybody? (laughs) What's that? Yes, a Christian who is mature, who knows Scripture, right? So, does it take special training? Do you have to be... Uh, Do you have to have so many credits? Do you, the answer is no. Um, In in fact, Paul's fundamental assumption in those texts, which look, I don't know if you can read those or not, um, but basically they're the one another texts and um, we're just actually just serving each other, ministering the word to each other. Bearing each other's burdens, restoring each other, stirring one another up, provoking one another to love and to good deeds, uh, and even at times turning back a sinner from the way of destruction, James 5, 19 to 20, right? So can you do that? The answer is, of course you can do that. If you, if you know the Word, if you've got uh, the Holy Spirit, that is, you're born again, You can do that, right? This is not this is not the domain of the specially trained or the professional. This is the domain of God's people. All right. Uh, Next. Uh, The presuppositions of biblical counseling. Something happened to these slides, Nathan. I don't know what happened to them. Um, What's that? Okay, all right. Oh, see, that's better. Oh, that's much better. Okay, presuppositions of biblical counseling. So what's the foundation? Scripture, the Bible. um, in, In theological terms, what would we say the foundation is? We would say it is the sufficiency of Scripture. Right, that's the foundation. All right, so um, God's word is sufficient, can, pertaining to all matters of faith and practice. Right, so does the Bible? Can the Bible help with your marriage? Yes. yes. Can the Bible help you overcome besetting sin? Yes. Can the Bible? Can the Bible tell you how to change your oil in your tundra? No, that's not what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. We mean things that pertain to faith and then life or practice. Uh, what is the goal of biblical counseling? What's that? Okay, point to Christ. Sanctification, right? So if I'm a Christian and I'm having trouble in my marriage, at the end of the day, it ends up being a sanctification issue in a sense, right? So if I'm a husband and I'm not loving my wife as Christ loved the church, that, by the way, is a sin and thus sanctification issue. If I'm a wife and I'm not submitting to my husband as to the Lord, that is a sin and thus sanctification issue. If I am a parent who um, is at a loss to know how to deal with my teenage kid, is the Bible sufficient to help me in that and to help me grow in that so that I can be a better parent? Yes, right? Now, by the way, it doesn't guarantee that your kid's going to turn out to be a better kid, all right? It also doesn't guarantee that your spouse is going to turn out to be a better spouse. The goal of sanctification, or the goal of biblical counseling is sanctification in our own lives, If you make, by the way, if you make your sanctification contingent on what your kids how your kids are going to react or how your spouse is going to react or it, how your boss is going to react, then you 're never going to be sanctified in the way that God wants you to be sanctified right Some of you actually just need to be a better spouse regardless of what your spouse is do, your your spouse is doing right so goal is sanctification um, what, what is what is the presuppositional efficacy of biblical counseling these are all in the notes by the way from last week <laughs> what's that yeah what's the efficacy that by the way efficacy what 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 makes it effectual what makes it effective it is the word and the spirit working together why do you have to have both word and spirit? Could I tell you exactly what the Bible has to say about any given topic and tell you what, how you're supposed to think or what you're supposed to do? I could. I could actually print it up for you in big, big font. But guess what? The Spirit of God has to be at work too. The spirit works through the word to effect change in our lives. All right? Do you have to be do you, <laughs> do you have to be willing to change in order to change? Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to just be the, you know, the same old person or you want to just be the same old person until the other person isn't the same old person, you're in trouble. Okay, finally, um, what is the presuppositional hope <laughs> that we have in biblical counseling? Change so is change possible? The answer is yes. so you know you understand that there's there's not only a there's not only a radical change that takes place when we are born again, and come to a saving knowledge of Christ, right? Does God change our lives when that happens? Absolutely. There are, there are major changes, like dead, now alive. That's a pretty big change, all right? Does that change continue in our Christian life? And the answer is yes. And here's, here's the dangerous thing, is to think that that initial change is the only change that matters, and then I don't need to worry about any other change. It's not true. You should be able right now to identify at least a few things in your Christian life that need to change. If you sit there scratching your head going, no, I think I've got it all down, okay? you don't know yourself. But here's, here's the glorious thing, is that the hope of, the hope of present change right? So do I have a hope of future change? And the answer is yes. When he appears, I'll be like him because I'll see him just as he is, right? So that's going to be the biggest change and it's going to last forever, but there's also change in the present. And so should should we as Christians be content with where we are? Not at all. We should have a holy discontentment and want to grow. We should want to be better husbands. We should want to be better wives. We should want to be better parents. We should want to be better followers of Jesus. We should want to be, we should want to be um, more compassionate to our neighbors. I mean, there is a whole spectrum of things that we should want in our Christian lives, and so the hope of present change is actually a real hope. What's What's the foundation of that hope? You have the Spirit of God who dwells in you, you have the Son of God who intercedes for you, and you have the grace of God that's at work in you. I, I'd say the hope of change is a really, really good hope, right? All right, uh, let's see. what was next, Nathan? Six characteristics. Of effective biblical counselors. One, obviously committed to the sufficiency of Scripture. Two, sees oneself as a fellow believer. What, what, was, what was that? Effective biblical counselors see themselves as a fellow believer. What's that? Okay. Sure, I'm helping somebody that's in the same boat as me, right? It's, it's a one another. This person's my brother. This person's my sister. This is, this, is not, this is not a counselee coming to see a professional. This is a brother or sister who's in need of help. And so how do I view myself if I happen to be the one that's called to help? As a fellow believer, we're all trying to get to heaven, right? We're all trying to we're all trying to uh, persevere to the end, run the race that's set before us, and sometimes we just need to help each other. And that's that's the context that you need to look at biblical counseling through. Uh, next, a good listener. What makes a good listener? Someone who listens. Excellent. That's what I like about Grace Community Church. Simple. All right? <laughs> Someone who listens. So we're going to talk a little bit more about listening today, um, refuses to take on uh, should say take, to take on the offense of another. Uh, what do we mean by that? You're, you're not taking a side, okay? can you believe that one person in the conflict is the primary guilty party without taking on the offense? Yes. In fact, you're going to have to do that at some point. If you're dealing with conflict, you're going to, you know, frankly, rarely is it. Well, it's never 100 right? But it typically is one person who is the source of the problem, and then the other person probably reacting badly, right? But it, it, is, it is totally different to actually make an assessment that this person is the primary guilty party and yet not take on the offense. What happens when I take on the offense? And that is, what I mean is, it's, it's taking a side, but it's also more than that. It's, it's taking on the offense of that person so that now I'm an offended party, you can't do that in counseling. If you take on the offense of, of the other person, you absolutely will not be objective in trying to bring truth and light to the situation. Okay. Uh, has thick skin. Why do you need thick skin if you're going to try to help somebody? Because what? Won't always work. It may not turn out like this. Oh, thank you so much for speaking the truth and love to me today. I know that was exactly what I needed, and it refreshed my soul, and I know exactly what I need to do now. Would you please pray for me right now that I'm able to follow the golden counsel from God's word that you just gave me? That is rare. It's rare. <laughs> You can't take it personally. By the way, if you give somebody godly counsel from the word and they reject that godly counsel, who are they rejecting? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. By the way, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that if you reject this, you're you're resisting God who gives us his Holy Spirit, right? So... People can reject, people, can people be uh, indifferent? Absolutely, right? Can people, um, can people dig in and refuse to see what you're trying to show them? Right? All of these things are true, and here's the thing, is that you can't take it personally. You can't take it as an insult. If you do, you've actually, you just simply won't be a good counselor. Right? Is it easy to take things personally? And the root of that is pride. Um, and then finally, instills a Christ-centered hope. Right? That's, that's what we want to do, right? So as a good counselor, you want them leaving... You don't want them leaving, and you just go, This is like the worst I've ever seen. I doubt you'll ever change. <laughs> you, you might feel that way, but because of the Holy Spirit, it's not true. Right? Okay. So you want to instill, you know what? God is for you. God's will for you is change. And God is not lacking in strength or willingness to change you. There's hope in his word. There's hope in the gospel. There's hope by the spirit. All right. Okay. What's next, Nathan? Uh, Counseling and unbelievers. All right. So this is where we left off. So, can we counsel unbelievers? Yes or no? How about yes and no? All right, by, by the way, like old school nuthetic counseling, it was just a hard no. You can't counsel unbelievers, and then the implication was, so don't even try. Okay? Now, <clears throat> If everything that we've said about biblical counseling is true, then the unbeliever actually lacks the fundamental resources to change. Right? Um, He doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't have a new heart, doesn't have a relationship with God, doesn't actually know the, the, the power of God's word, and so in that sense, in trying to bring biblical counsel to an unbeliever, you're talking about someone that doesn't submit to the law of God and is not even willing to, right? Romans 8, 7 and 8. So so in, in, in a technical sense, you can't do biblical counseling with an unbeliever because the unbeliever doesn't have the shared presuppositions Of biblical counseling. Right? Should you meet with an unbeliever? Yes. Should you talk about the unbeliever's problem? Yes. But here's here's the wonderful thing: is that I'm going to talk to an unbeliever. I'm going to give them counsel in a way that's different than I'm going to give to a believer. If an unbeliever, let's just say, let's just say uh, a guy comes in and he's, he's just angry and he's, he's ruining his marriage because he's angry and he doesn't know, he doesn't know God from a box of rocks. I mean, he is dead in trespasses and sins and he comes in and he says, okay, I, I realize I'm destroying my marriage. I realize that I've got an anger problem. I don't know what to do about it. Um, are you going to give a series of steps for him to simply stop being an angry person? And the answer is, that's not where I'm going to start at all. Because, because his biggest problem is actually not that he's not following the right steps. His biggest problem is his heart. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to take, I'm going to take that anger and I'm going to use it redemptively. I'm going to take anger, for instance, and I'm going to come at it from the angle of the law, and then I'm going to come at it from the angle of the gospel. So what what do I mean by I'm going to come at his anger from the uh, angle of the law? I'm... I want what I want him to see is not just the practical implications of being an angry person. You're making life miserable. You're destroying your marriage. You're you're a, you're, a, you're a tough person to live with. All of that's just horizontal stuff right if i'm going to bring the i want to bring the law to bear so that he starts to see that his problem is not just a pragmatic problem that has implications for his life i want him to see that he's actually sinning against god through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I may take a number of passages that deal with anger and show him how bad anger is from a Godward perspective first. Then I can talk about the fruit that's coming about because his heart's not aligned with God, and so that's the law. I'm trying to show him his sin. I'm trying to show him that he... (laughs) Once I show him the law, does he turn around and go, oh, okay, now I know what to do? No. Now I need to show him that he's helpless to do what the law says. And then bring in the gospel. So, so in a sense, you're sitting down with an unbeliever. You're not giving biblical counsel like you would to a believer. But what you're doing is you're taking that person's sin, and through, in a sense, you're 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 making you're making a hole um, with the law, so that this is the way the Puritans talked. You have the the needle of the law that penetrates and makes a channel for the thread of the gospel. So now what I want him to see, now I want him to see that there's actually forgiveness in Christ, and not only forgiveness, but also the the possibility of being a new creation and having a relationship with God that changes his life, right? So we could talk about this a lot. Jay Adams used to just call this pre-counseling. In a sense, it's just evangelism. I would highly encourage uh, listening to the ACBC podcast with Pastor Tim Pasma on um, on can we counsel unbelievers. It is absolutely excellent, excellent material. All right, okay. Any questions about counseling and unbelievers? Yeah. What's that? What if they reject the Bible? What if they reject the Bible? Okay. So their only hope is in the gospel, right? And so I would say that instead, and, and, this, and, and of course there's a lot of variables in, in any given situation, all right? So this is just a generalization. I would say instead of trying to engage then in apologetics to convince them of the Bible's authority and reliability, that I would, I would press from a different angle. And that is, you're rejecting the Bible. Okay? You're rejecting the Bible because you think that you're the authority. You're, you think you're the autonomous one here. So how's that working out for you? Okay, seriously, how's that working out for you? You reject God's authority, which is scripture, rely on your own, and now you're in this mess. I actually think that probably humbling yourself at this point would probably be much more fruitful than being the arbiter of all truth. Okay, so even that you can use in a way, you can use it um, evangelistically. All right, Don. Um, going back to the anger problem, what rule uh, what, in the Bible would you show, uses as an as a, uh, example of a biblical character who's got anger problem, and what happens? Well, my first choice would be Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, And anger in the heart leads to murder. Then I would go, I'd look at Cain from Genesis 4, and then look at anger in light of the Sermon on the Mount. What am I really guilty of when I'm angry with somebody? Jesus says it's actually murder. So this is what I mean. You you have to, in order, and by the way, this is true for a Christian as well, and that is, in order to have any change in any area of life, you actually have to see what you're doing from the Bible's perspective, It's that simple. If if all I do is look at anger as, um, well, every once in a while I lose my temper. Okay, That's not a biblical assessment of what's going on in your heart. You know? Spurgeon, I, maybe I said this last week, Spurgeon said that he heard of a man who said he lost his temper and he told the man, you better not go looking for it. It's not served you very well. <laughs> what do you do with an unbeliever that doesn't want to be counseled Well, let's just say from a Christian, okay, by a Christian. Then they don't get counsel from a Christian. It's impossible. By the way, it's impossible if a believer doesn't want to get biblical counseling. It's not going to do any good. So then what's the recourse for an unbeliever, right? And so... um, I was hoping to get into this later, but you brought it up and it's an important, it's an important issue. Um, Can God, in common grace, help stabilize somebody through the counsel or advice of an unbeliever? And the answer is yes. Okay, yes. So if... If there's an unbeliever and he's got, um, let's say, deep, life-controlling, dominating sins, and let's say drugs or alcohol, all right? That's a common one. And there's no way they want to go and talk to a Christian. Um, But they're willing to go and, you know, go to an N.A. meeting. Do I think N.A. is great? The answer is no. Do I think A.A.? Is um, is in a sense another religion, and the answer is yes. Do I also think that in God's grace, common grace, that He can use um, various things to actually um, extricate that person from that sin that's destroying their life? And the answer is yes. Now, here's the here's the problem: is that let's say that they let's say they get um, they get help and they stop drinking or they stop doing drugs, all right? Um for us as Christians, that's not that's not the goal. Okay? That's a short-term goal, but it's not our goal. And so uh so on the one hand, if you have an unbeliever and they're willing to get help um just not from a Christian or from the Bible, um then I say you know, what do you have to lose? In one sense, you, they they try to get help where they can get it. All right, and and God has, um, you know, used things that are let's say not just I mean let's say sub biblical. All right, and that ends up leading that person to pursuing the Lord. I think some uh, someone like Mike Shepard, right? Mike Shepard was a really 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 bad alcoholic. And God, God used AA to get him sober and then, but sobriety is not salvation. Only Jesus can bring salvation. And that's where Mike ended up. All right. So I don't, so that's, I think it's complicated because you have convictions about secular counseling, right? So let me just, let me just flip it for a minute you also could have somebody that goes to a secular counselor who then turns around and, and, and comes away with, um, so all of this is actually your fault. Okay? You send a kid to a secular counselor, um, there is there is no guarantee that that kid does not walk out of that session believing that his biggest problem is are his toxic parents. All right? So... It's risky. All right? So I know that probably doesn't help a whole lot, but I think just knowing what the risks are, ash. Well, you could put her in a barrel, seal the barrel. That contains the problem. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I've, it, that ends up being really complicated because you don't want to miss the opportunity but the fact that she's not a willing participant is, is strike one. The fact that she has parents who are looking to someone else to sort of be the silver bullet is strike two, right? The fact that she could sit there with, with you and then go back home and then receive no f- follow-up that's consistent with what she was told is strike three, okay? Okay. So I would say that in a case like that, you're letting the parents know what the what the direction is that you're so that they can at least you know maybe they'll try, maybe not, you know so but I would say the success rate of something like that is is small. So, so sorry to be such a bummer. All right, um we're going to get to the seven eyes. Right now, and uh, the seven eyes, we're going to do this a little more quickly. So, these seven eyes come uh, IBCD, you might remember in our uh, care and discipleship. So, first is involvement, and by involvement, what we mean is so if somebody comes to you and just says, Hey, you know, I hear that that you've helped other Christians, do you, do you mind if we meet, right? So now we have involvement. And involvement, first of all, would be uh, to, number one, avoid professionalism. Right? So I, I can't tell you actually how um, how opposed to professionalism in counseling I am. Um, you know, if if... You're like, well, I'm the counselor, okay? Well, you should probably retire, okay? Um, So avoid professionalism, be humble, be brotherly, okay, right? Um, By humble, is it easy to like, I can't believe you do that. I would never do that. Is that probably a good thing to say to a counselee? No probably not a good thing to say at all. You want to be brotherly. Uh, Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, talks about you need to actually know and love the person that you're counseling. Okay. I, I just I, I think you can see the text there, but I think of Paul, and he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, "...for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears." Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. I mean, that's 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 involvement, right? So he says to the Thessalonians, "We became to you as a nursing mother and as uh, an admonishing father." That's that's involvement, right? Um, you can't just look at it as um, you know. Well, you you you've got your sixty minutes, and now you know, you're out of here, right? There's an involvement, there's, there's a love uh, for the, the person that you're trying to help, right? And by the way, can God simply use that part of it to, to make a huge impact on somebody? The answer is absolutely, right? So when, when Paul says this to the Corinthians, how, um, how nice were the Corinthians being at this point? Were they going to win, like, Church of the Year Award? They might win the Darwin Award for churches. But they're not going to win the Church of the Year Award. Right? And Paul just says, affliction, anguish of heart, right? tears. I didn't want to make you sorrowful, but I did want you to know the love that I have for you. So, involvement. Uh, second is investigation, and this is, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road a little bit. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at some of these texts. Uh, Proverbs chapter 18, this comes back to listen well. So you might notice that this is about the third time we've talked about listening well. All right. So Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. How might that be applied to a counseling situation? You got the answer. And he's like, so I, I know exactly what your problem is. Okay? So you give an answer before you hear, it's folly and shame. Verse 15... The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So, so I'm listening and I'm listening for all kinds of things and not just listening to the words that are coming out of the mouth, right? And so, so you listen well, you don't jump to conclusions, I think that if if I were to write a little book on mistakes counselors make, I would say jumping to conclusions too quickly is one of a, a common mistake. It's like, okay, well, I've got I've got this down. I've I've seen this a hundred times. Right, um, and again, Paul or Paul Solomon. Says uh, verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him, right? So I don't want to jump to conclusions. I want to make sure that as I'm listening, by the way, is is asking questions a way to listen? 100%. So Proverbs 20, verse 5, a plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out, so what makes up good questions? Well, relevant questions that can produce facts. Okay. There comes a point in the in the what we're just calling the investigation process where where you're trying to actually simply establish what happened or what is happening. So you're asking relevant questions in order to produce facts, not opinions? Are people quick when they're talking about their problem or the problem of someone else that they're there to talk to you about? Okay. You should be very careful about that part, right? Is it, is it possible to start trafficking in opinion instead of facts, and what might, what might some of those opinions be that are not fact? Well, how about the motive of the other person? How many times you have somebody come in and they, they have, they're there to tell you all about the motive of the other person? Yeah. I'm sorry. Did, did, God take a sabbatical and put you in charge of actually being able to know what goes on in a human heart? Well, I know. Maybe you know because you're more guilty of the very same thing that you're seeing just simple little shades of. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So... You ask good questions that produce facts, you can, uh, then you can ask open-ended questions, right? So, so um, questions that pre- relevant questions that produce facts are concrete questions. Open-ended questions kind of then give the person a little bit of, um, of um, in a sense, a little bit of latitude to be able to kind of start talking. Are you supposed to be a good listener during that time too, That's where you really have to be a good listener. So, there are are some principles. Um, This is still under investigation. I don't have it up there for a slide. And so this would be, everything's in acrostic, of course. The preach principles for investigation. So you've got somebody, you're talking, and so you start with P. That is, you start with physical questions. Are you taking any medication? Are you using alcohol or drugs? How much sleep are you getting what what shift do you work why Why might that be relevant? Somebody's got a graveyard shift How well do you function yes we won't we won't tell anybody how you know that. <laughs> are, physical, um, are physical questions important questions to ans- ask in the course of counseling? And the answer is yes. Um, what, about, what about diet? So tell me, what, what do you normally eat? And if they say Cheez-Its and burritos from AM, PM... You might have a problem. Can, can diet, well, let, let's back up. Can the physical impact the spiritual? Yes. Can the spiritual impact the physical? Yes, right? We are body, soul, people. There's an interdependence. So physical questions may end up being really important Actually recommending somebody go and get a blood panel to make sure that potassium and lithium and whatever else, B12, right? So can that mess with you? The answer is yes. So investigate in terms of the physical. Um, And then R is resources. You want to ask that person. So going back to Ashley's scenario, Uh, What help is available to you? Are you connected with the church? What about family? What about friends? In in other words, what I'm looking for on resources is I'm looking for... um, is there a context in your life, are there, are there connections in your life that can help you with this process, or are all of those connections going to drag you back down? Right? Is it possible to give somebody good, godly counsel, and then they go, and then their spouse turns everything on its head within five minutes of them getting home? The answer is yes, by the way, in case you didn't know. Okay. Also with resources, I'm asking about accountability. It may be actually pretty um, appropriate at times for a person to have um, a friend come in with them so that they're hearing the same counsel so that they can in turn help keep that person on track and keep them accountable. Uh, e is emotional this is where we're asking questions regarding fear, worry, anxiety, bitterness, depression, anger. Uh, in other words, things that, that, that have... By the way, all those sins that I just mentioned all have very, very strong emotional components to them. Okay? There's no such thing as emotionless worry. There's no such thing as emotionless anxiety. There's no such thing as emotionless depression. All of the by the way, there's no such thing as emotionless anger. Right? He got so angry, but he was so dispassionate about it. Right? <laughs> that is not the way that it works. So we ask those kinds of questions. Then A is action. And under action, what we're what we're getting at is, is What did you do? By the way, if you're a parent, you should should master this. Why? Because kids will tell you everything but what they did. So, what am I looking for under under action? I'm asking questions. And so, if somebody comes in and they say... um, uh, My my uh, my husband and I we just we don't get along and we end up just um, having there's a lot of stress in the home and and so forth. So what I might want to do is I might want to say what exactly does that look like? Does it look like yelling and screaming? Does it look like profanity? What, what do you do? Right? So I want, I want action. Why? Psalm 32. When I remained silent about my sin, my, my vitality was sapped away as with the fever heat of summer. Okay? So if somebody comes in and says, hey, I've got, uh, I really struggle with lust. I don't just go, yeah, well, everybody does. I want to say, what, is that, what does that look like? What does that mean? What is what is the action that's happening when you say because are people willing to be relatively vague about what they struggle with? Okay. The answer is 110%. In fact, there's a sort of an old biblical counseling joke and that is three beers actually means six. You know what I'm saying? our tendency is to minimize and even marginalize what we've done, okay. to make it not seem as bad. And so the action part of the investigation is you're really trying to get to what did you do, what do you do? And then the C is conceptual, which is why did you do it, right? So... What are we looking at? We're looking at a heart problem, right? It's out of the heart that precedes what? All the crummy stuff that Jesus says proceeds from the heart, right? Fornications, anger, covetousness, greed, malice, right? So all of those things are heart issues, which means that there's something beneath the surface that's giving rise to the action. Is that not true? What about worry? Okay. We'll come back to this in a, in a minute. Worry is a symptom. Okay. Worry's not the root cause of worry, there's something underneath worry that makes us worry. Jesus actually pinpoints that one for us in Matthew chapter 6. Okay. Okay. Um, H, historical. Insofar as it's relevant, family history, personal history. The person struggling with alcohol, might it be an important component that they were raised by an alcoholic parent? is that the determining factor in trying to deal with a person's problem, is history? No. It might be helpful in us getting some some insight. Um, so we already talked about don't neglect the possibility of physiological factors. We already mentioned a person may need to be stabilized before there can be meaningful interaction. What do I mean by that? Well, this... Um, so the, the, the use of medication has always been uh, controversial in the course of uh, the biblical counseling movement. Early on, it was, it was completely dismissed. Okay? And most biblical counselors today acknowledge that it was a mistake to completely dismiss the use of medication. Um, there may be a prudent use for medication. Now, is our society over-medicated on, um, on mood-altering drugs? Yes, absolutely. Is our, is our society um, over-medicated with psychotropic drugs that end up just masking people's problems? The answer is Yes. Could there be situations where medicine actually may help stabilize somebody so that they can at least begin to process things from a a more emotionally stable perspective? And the answer is yes. I would say medication is not a long-term fix. In fact, it's not a fix. You have to understand that. Psychotropic drugs... Are not a fix they have to be in a sense um, you by the way, the value of a Christian doctor who understands these things is he 's worth his weight in gold okay? if I go in if I go in and say um, Oh, so, in fact, when I went in this, this week and told the gal I identified as a six-foot-four male, she says, I've got to ask you these questions. Have you experienced anxiety in the last two weeks? <laughs> nope, not once. Have you experienced sorrow or depression over the last two weeks? Okay. Like, no, actually, no. I mean, I'm sad about stuff, but it's normal sad stuff, right? What if I'd have said, I feel really anxious and I don't know why? Okay. Well, then the doc comes in and she says, now, I don't know about our doc, but doc comes in and says, so I notice you've been feeling anxious, Any any reasons? No, I don't know what happens. I I, I get sweaty palms and I my heart rate goes up and I I feel like I want to jump out of my skin and um and 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 I feel uh, overwhelmed, like I can't do anything except just sit there and, and 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 agonize. What's he or she gonna do? In all likelihood. He's going to prescribe me something, okay? Now, if I said um, I feel sluggish and um, I have a hard time getting up in the morning, uh, that doctor might check my thyroid, right? In other words, and what I want you to see is, and I think if I'm wrong, Craig, you just just tell me, okay? Um, I think that, you go in and you say you have certain symptoms, they actually empirically investigate to see what's wrong so that they know how to medicate you. But if you say something that is, uh, that is emotional or, quote, psychological, there's not, in a sense, the same attention given to any kind of empirical investigation. Rather, they now, in a sense, it's like a guessing game. Here, try this. And then, of course, if you've seen the commercials, if you feel like you're going to kill yourself, you should probably see your doctor. Right? I love it. If it gives you diarrhea, migraine, headaches, makes you homicidal on the freeway, you want to kill your family, um, there's actually another drug that you can take that then helps you. So we want, we want to understand, and, and, and I think that the idea is, is that we, we, need to be, we need to be balanced. We need to see the, 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 the incredible limitation of medication, but we don't need to dismiss medication altogether. Okay? All right. Well, um, we'll stop there and pick up uh, next week at that spot. And so I hope that this has been helpful, and we will pray and then worship God in the hour to come. Father, thank you for your holy word forever settled in heaven. Father, even as we say again and again, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And so, Father, we thank you that you've given us a sufficient word. We pray that you'd give us wisdom in helping each other. We pray that you would help us to be to be good counselors that simply love our brothers, love our sisters, and try to help by pointing them to Jesus through the Word. We ask that you'd meet with us in the hour to come. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.